You're listening to Cross Section, the podcast of the Summit View Church of Christ. Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord lifts his God. In this sermon series, we've been considering what it means that Jesus has been exalted by God to be king over all creation and king over us. And of all the passages of Scripture that describe Jesus as king, and there are many, one of the boldest and most memorable comes in the book of Revelation. In Revelation 19, verses 11 to 16. This is our text this morning. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in, the li- in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. There are a few signals in the text here that we're to understand that this rider on the white horse is Jesus. So, for example, his eyes are like blazing fire. Well, that's how Jesus' eyes looked back in chapter 1, Revelation chapter 1. Jesus looks different in different parts of Revelation. In chapter 1, he has eyes that are like blazing fire. Same thing for the rider on the white horse here. His name is the Word of God. The Gospel of John opens by calling Jesus the Word who was with God and who was God and who became flesh and dwelled among us. Jesus is the Word of God. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword. Again, the person with the sharp sword coming from his mouth in chapter 1 and verse 16 was Jesus. He will rule the nations with an iron scepter. That's a quote from Psalm 2, verse 9, and it's applied to Jesus in Revelation 12, verse 5. And when he's called King of Kings and Lord of Lords, that title echoes chapter 17, verse 14, where the Lamb, which in Revelation is Jesus, is called Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And so by the time we arrive here in Revelation 19, We see these terms, these images. We understand that the rider on the white horse here is Jesus. And this is not Jesus hanging weak and broken on the cross. Not anymore. This is not Jesus meek and gentle and holding a child in his arms, though that's a very natural thing for Jesus to do. But this is Jesus in an equally valid but strikingly different portrayal of who he is. Jesus glorified, 
magnified, exalted as king of kings. Jesus, the warrior, ready to do battle against the enemies of God and of God's people. And in this aspect of his divine identity, he is awesome. Let's take a minute today and let's just meditate on Jesus as he is described in this passage. And let's just honor him and marvel at him for a bit. Heaven opens and Jesus emerges riding a white horse like an ancient king might do. This is not, as I said, Jesus the suffering servant or the sacrificial lamb, but Jesus the mighty king. In verses uh, in, in these verses, verses 11 to 16, four titles or names are given for Jesus. The first, verse 11, is faithful and true. Jesus is the ever-dependable, the trustworthy, the one who does right, the one in whom there is no falsehood or deceit. He is faithful and true. Still in verse 11, he judges and wages war with justice. He does not conquer for personal pleasure or to build himself an empire. He doesn't attack his foes out of arrogant pride. But he judges evil for what it is. And he addresses it. And he goes to war only to bring about justice, to make things right, to protect the weak and the innocent, and to safeguard his people. Don't you wish every leader of a nation would be faithful and true and always act with justice? This world would be a grand place if it were so. At this point in Revelation, Jesus is coming forth to do battle against the beast and its forces. The, the beast in Revelation represents Rome and any other government or any other power that oppresses God's people, that exalts itself in the place of God and expects people to give it their first and highest loyalty. But since chapter 6, God has been working to undo the power of those who bring injustice against his people. And now Jesus comes here in chapter 19 to bring the beast and all its evil forces to a final end. And right after where we stopped reading, there's a brief account of a battle. And by the end of verse 21, the beast and his forces are no more. In verse 12. His eyes are like blazing fire, penetrating, full of divine power, seeing all. This is Jesus, our Lord. On his head are many crowns. Now, I tried to figure that out. I don't know how you do that, how you get lots of crowns on one head. I mean, they're kind of made for, you know, one at a time. But now maybe they're stacked on top of each other. I don't know. But this is a vision. Revelation is, is John's record of a vision that God gave him. And in a vision, you can get away with all kinds of strange things, just like in a dream. But everything in a, in a vision from God has meaning. And the point of these crowns is that Jesus is king over many realms. There is no limit to his sovereignty. His second name of the four is mentioned in verse 12. But we don't know what it is. 
He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. It's top secret. And it is the prerogative of leaders and rulers to hold secret information that no one else has access to. And Jesus, as the highest of all rulers, knows things no one else is permitted to know. He knows his secret name. Verse 13, he is dressed in a robe dipped in blood. Some people think this is his own blood that he shed on the cross, the blood by which we are forgiven. That could be. I think it's more likely the blood of his enemies because of verse 15, which we'll look at in just a minute. His name, the third of four names in this section, is the Word of God. He is God's message, God's self-revelation, God's command, God's voice to humanity in a sense. When he speaks, God speaks. And when we encounter Jesus, we encounter God's own word. In verse 14, the armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Jesus does not come alone. He is commander of a vast and powerful force. There's a lot of mystery about who these armies of heaven are. Some think that they're angels coming in power with Jesus. And that's possible. That's entirely possible. Jesus certainly said that when he comes again, he will come uh, with his angels, with his father's angels. Some think these armies are the martyrs because the martyrs are given white garments in chapter 6. And these troops of Jesus wear white. These could be the martyrs. Some think that they're all of Jesus' followers, living and dead, because they're all given fine linen to wear. Just a few verses before what we just read in chapter 19 and verse 8. These could be all of Jesus' followers. In fact, all of these guesses could be correct. They, They could all be correct at the same time even. But one warning about being in Jesus' army. In the battle scene that comes right after what we just read, in verses 17 to 21, the only one we see fighting is Jesus, who strikes down the enemy with the sword of his mouth. If anyone else does any fighting, it's not mentioned. So we need to be careful about deciding we are the Lord's army here and we are therefore authorized to go out and destroy the enemies of God and of God's people. But we just don't have that authority. Jesus alone has that authority. And he taught us to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. Actually, in Revelation, especially chapter 12, verse 11, the way we triumph over the enemy is by the blood of Jesus and by our faithful testimony to him as we proclaim him and follow him. That's how we do battle against our enemy, the devil, and all his minions. Not by destroying our enemies, but by holding faithful to Christ our Lord. In verse 15, there's that sharp sword coming from his mouth with which he strikes, out, strikes down the nations. Remember, strange things can happen in visions, but they all have meaning. 
Here the meaning is that by his mere word, he conquers. And no nation is mighty enough to withstand him. He will rule them with an iron scepter, that quote out of Psalm 2. Iron was the strongest metal known at that time, the strongest metal used for weapons. This was a little over 1,900 years ago. Jesus has an iron scepter. Nothing can challenge his might. He rules with absolute power. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. This image comes from Isaiah 63, verses 1 to 6, where God has been angry with the enemies of his people who have, who have uh, oppressed and harmed his people. And God, in his wrath, rises up and fights and defeats his enemies, and his garments are spattered with their blood, just like a person squashing the grapes in a wine press, squashing those grapes with their feet and getting the juice all over them. Here it's Jesus who treads the winepress of the wrath of God. God is angry in Revelation because his his people are being mistreated. They're being oppressed. They're being persecuted. In fact, if you ever want to read through Revelation and try to make some sense of it, uh, just read all the way through and count all the times that the persecution or, or the bloodshed of the saints, of God's holy people, is mentioned. The persecution of the church is one of the main themes in Revelation. What is God going to do about that? Here Jesus treads the winepress of God's wrath. He brings God's judgments on his enemies and their blood stains his garment. In verse 16, here's the fourth and final name attributed to Jesus in this section and it's the biggest of them all. King of kings and Lord of lords. No king is higher than he. He is king over all other kings. No Lord is higher than he. He is Lord and master over all. And that title, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, that sounds good to our ears. Especially after this description of Jesus that we've just read. Because as followers of Jesus, our King, we delight in the power of Jesus. As followers of Jesus, our King, we take great hope in the promise of his ultimate victory. As followers of Jesus, our King, we trust him because of his excellent character, because he is faithful and true and he judges justly. He has received from God authority over all creation. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. We delight in that title given to our King. But to say Jesus is King of kings, Lord of lords, simply to say Jesus is Lord was a very dangerous thing to say when the book of Revelation was written. Our best guess is that John wrote Revelation around the year 90 or 95, right toward the end of the first century, maybe 60-ish years after the resurrection of Jesus. And John tells us in chapter 1 that he was on the island of Patmos, which is just off the western coast of what is now Turkey, and right in between Turkey and Greece. 
That was right in the middle of the Roman Empire at that time. And for Romans, there was only one person who could be called king and lord in an absolute sense. And that was Caesar, the emperor. For example, our best guess about uh, who the emperor was when Revelation was written, just because we're not certain what year Revelation was written, was, uh, we think it was probably Domitian. The emperor was probably Domitian. He ruled in the years 81 to 96. Probably just a few years before Revelation was written, the city of Ephesus, which is relatively close to the island of Patmos, built a temple dedicated to the worship of the emperor Domitian and his two predecessors, the emperors Vespasian and Titus. Now, that's not something we tend to do with our presidents. We don't tend to build temples uh, for their worship. You know, we don't go to the temple of this president or that president and bow down before the president's picture or his, his statue or, or offer prayers to a former president or bring incense and gifts to the former president. But the Romans did that, especially in what is now Western Turkey. Uh, the, the cult of the emperor was especially strong there at this time. In fact, when Revelation was written, three of the seven churches to which Revelation is written, all of them in that area in western Turkey, what was then the province of Asia under the Roman government, three of those seven churches uh, lived in cities that had temples devoted to one or more of the emperors. Those cities were Ephesus, Smyrna, and Pergamum. This was considered a great honor to have a, a temple to the emperors. In your city, they, cities competed for this honor. Only three were granted that privilege over the course of about 100 years. Coming back to Domitian, the Roman historian Suetonius tells us that Domitian insisted on being called Dominus et Deus, which in Latin means Lord and God. The emperor required that his subjects call him Lord and God. Now, if you're a Christian, could you call the emperor Lord and God? You could call Jesus Lord and God because he is our Lord, our master, our king, and he is the son of God. He is one with God the Father. But could you call the emperor that? Could you worship at the emperor's temple? Could you pray to the emperor like they did at those three imperial temples? But there were times when Christians were expected to do this. It was a sign of, you know, civic responsibility, uh, being a good citizen, being a loyal citizen. We have a series of letters written around the year 111, so a few years after Revelation was written, written between Pliny, P-L-I-N-Y, you can look them up, a Roman governor of a section of what is now northern Turkey, and the emperor Trajan, who was Domitian's successor. So they wrote letters back and forth, and Pliny kept those letters. They've been preserved now for almost 2,000 years. In one of those letters, Pliny lets Trajan, the emperor, know that sometimes he has Christians executed if they refuse to curse Christ and offer prayer with incense and wine to the image of the emperor. 
he just, he's found some Christians, he's had them brought before him, and he can't tell that they're doing much that's really destructive to society, but they're just so disloyal to the emperor because they won't worship his image. I mean, who wouldn't do that? And so he has them executed for stubbornness and refusal to obey the authorities, if nothing else. And the emperor, in his reply to Pliny, tells him he's basically doing the right thing. If your life was on the line, if the future and the welfare of your family was on the line, could you curse Christ and pray to the image of the emperor? And something a little like that still happens in some places today. Like in North Korea. The ruler there goes by the title Supreme Leader. That's what he expects to be called. If he's the supreme leader, where does that put Jesus? And so Christians in North Korea have to think about this. In fact, any Christians bold enough to put Jesus first and the supreme leader second in their lives risk being arrested and sent to a labor camp. But when we like our brothers and sisters in North Korea, proclaim that Jesus is Lord. What we're saying is that Jesus is the ultimate authority in our lives, and there is no other. He is not second to anyone. The emperor is not the ultimate authority in our lives. The president is not the ultimate authority in our lives. The supreme leader is not the ultimate authority. Lord, of course, means master. And Jesus is our first and final master. There is no other above him. The Christian martyrs gave their lives for the proclamation, Jesus is Lord. Pliny doesn't mention any of their names. He just mentions there have been some that he's executed because they refused to renounce Christ and worship the emperor. They refused to renounce Christ as Lord. And if they died for the lordship of Christ, then let us at least live for the lordship of Christ. Let's think about two ways we might do that. First, living out the proclamation, Jesus is Lord, means we can put no human being or earthly power above him. He must take the highest place in our lives. We must give him our first and ultimate uh, loyalty. The only power over Jesus our Lord is God the Father himself, to whom Jesus submits. Because remember from last week's lesson, Jesus calls God the Father, my God, five times in the book of Revelation. Once in chapter 3 and verse 2, four times in chapter 3 and verse 12. He calls God, my God. Under God himself, Jesus is king over all. And so, you know, our, our employers don't get to push us to do anything unethical that would advance the business, but that would dishonor Jesus. We just, we can't do it because Jesus is Lord. 
And if that costs us our job, so be it. Our finances, our well-being are not our Lord. Jesus is our Lord, and we trust him to provide for us when we need it. And if we woke up one morning to, God forbid, the news that the government had somehow outlawed Christianity, like in North Korea, or maybe regulated it, like in China, we might have to stop worshiping here and just worship in secret, like our brothers and sisters in those lands do sometimes. But we would not stop worshiping our God. Jesus is Lord. And so the first way that we live out the claim Jesus is Lord is by putting no other power above Jesus in our lives. Second, and once we've done that, living out the proclamation Jesus is Lord and honoring him as King of kings and Lord of lords means at its, at its core, obeying him. And that's where it gets tough, right? Because, frankly, we're Americans we love our country. We have grown up in, the, uh, in, our, in our nation. We have kind of absorbed its value system. And as Americans, we do not have a king or queen, right? And with absolute respect for our British friends and for the British Commonwealth in the loss of their queen and a good one this past week, we like not having a monarch over us. We're Americans and we like it this way. We're an independent sort of people. We have our own opinions about things, and we like to make our own decisions about what we'll do and not do. Obedience to a, a government power does not come naturally for us. I mean, in, in a lot of ways, we're just used to it, you know? We follow the laws, that sort of thing. We try not to run through red lights, right? But in other ways, when obedience becomes uncomfortable, we, you know, it doesn't come naturally for us. The COVID crisis was a great case in point. Remember how hard it was to accept it when the CDC and our governors and our health districts all enacted their emergency powers and set rules that changed how, how we lived? Or even just going to a, a friend's house or a, a relative's house and they wanted you to wear the mask and you didn't want to. I know I was frustrated a time or two by all the rules. Some of our frustration, even resistance, was appropriate because human leaders can make mistakes, can abuse their power. But I just wonder how we independence-minded people, and I love that we're that way, but I wonder how we feel about obeying Jesus as our king. It's a little bit of a foreign concept for Americans. When Jesus commands you, for example, to love your enemy, and he means it, can you do it? even though you don't want to, even though it doesn't feel right? Can you love your enemy even if your enemy is someone who ruined a friendship by their gossip and that still hurts? Even if your enemy is someone who hurt you deeply in a way you wouldn't share with most people because it just, it's too painful. Even if your enemy is the other political party or someone with whom you have a strong disagreement and every time you think of them, you think, we don't agree on this thing. Can you genuinely love them because Jesus said to? Sometimes it's hard to obey Jesus, our King, King of kings and Lord of lords, even though we know he is faithful and true, the one who always acts with justice, the one we can always trust. 
at the root of the American debate about abortion and at the root of the American debate about how we define marriage is the question of what constitutes acceptable sexual morality and ethics. And that's an important issue, even in the book of Revelation. It comes up in chapters 2, 9, and the last two chapters, 21 and 22. Jesus himself says in chapter 22, verse 15, that those who are sexually immoral will not enter the eternal city. Are you willing to let the king of kings be king over how you feel about such a volatile and sensitive and personal issue? And just every day, the instructions that we read three weeks ago from Colossians about how we should set our hearts and minds on things above where Christ is. Uh, Everyday instructions like put to death evil desires and greed. Get rid of anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language. Clothe yourselves with compassion and humility. Over everything else, put on love. Teachings like that that we read three weeks ago. Are you learning to do these things? If you've been doing them a long time already, are you honoring Jesus as king by trying to grow in them even more? Obedience is hard, especially for us independent-minded people. And that's fine. But Jesus is our king. And he's our king because he is worthy to be our king. Because for the will of God and for our salvation, he gave his life for us. He is the kind of king who willingly, gladly lays down his life for his people. But he is not the suffering servant hanging on the cross anymore. He was. The character, his character that put him in that position is still there. But he is not on the cross today. Nor is he the sacrificial lamb, meek and mild. He is still our sacrificial lamb. But he's much more than that as well. He has accomplished that work. And today he is the powerful warrior on the white horse, faithful and true. Having given his life to save his followers, he will not willingly permit our enemy, the devil, to take any of them. And so with justice, he judges and wages war. And with eyes like blazing fire, with many crowns, with the sword of his mouth, he does battle for us. And as the word of God, he leads his armies into battle. And we fight for him by obeying his commands in the midst of a world that is ruled by the evil one. And that is therefore often inclined to reject Jesus our Lord. A world where some rulers and governments even actively oppose him. But in the end, no one will be able to stand against him. For he rules with an iron scepter. And by his mere word, he will strike down the nations. For God has exalted him and made him king of kings and lord of lords. This is our claim. Jesus is Lord. And there is no other. We will trust in him. And we will obey him. The martyrs died for this claim. 
Let us at least live for it. And so let us live this week in a manner consistent with our claim. Jesus is Lord. May God bless you. Let's pray. Our dear Father, God of our Lord Jesus Christ, we honor you today and we submit ourselves to you again to be your people, your children, your servants, trusting in your goodness, in your excellent character, trusting in your overwhelming love by which you sent Jesus, our Lord, to be one of us and to live as one of us and to die for us. And then you raised him from the dead and exalted him to your own right hand to be King of kings and Lord of lords, and we honor him today. Lord, we dedicate ourselves again today to following him and to obeying him. Just help us to do so better and better. Lord, you know how hard it is for me sometimes that you call me to do things I don't want to do, and you call me to obey. And sometimes it's just a struggle to do it. And I have not been perfect in that. Dear Father, forgive me and help me to do better. Lord, sometimes we're just independent-minded people and, and we just we want to do what we want to do and, and we're used to having that freedom. But Lord, when you call us to obey you, help us to do it. Give us strength. Remind us of your love and how trustworthy you have always been so that we may find the courage to obey you. And Lord, I confess today that every time we obey you, we find that our, our lives go better. It doesn't always make things easier, but we just, life is better because we're walking with you. We thank you. So dear God, go with us this week. Help us to live out our claim, Jesus is Lord. Help us to trust in you and to walk with you. Lord, let your blessing rest upon our church today. Here in this place, throughout this city, throughout our state, our nation, throughout the world. We love you and we give you praise. In Jesus' name.